Support for the Source podcast comes from UT Health San Antonio, South Texas' largest academic research institution, where what is discovered in its labs translates into life-changing patient care. More at groundbreakingresearch.org. Live from the John L. Santico studio, this is The Source from Texas Public Radio. I'm David Martin Davies. The discovery of native living microbes on Mars or any other place outside of Earth and our solar system, that would be one of the most significant scientific breakthroughs in in human history. It would be a profound uh, change. It would cause implications across multiple areas in science and how we see ourselves and our place in the universe. It would challenge our current understanding of life and all of its possibilities. And a leader in the search for life on Mars is Dr. Kendall Lynch. She's a NASA astrobiologist, a geomicrobiologist. She's a staff scientist at the Lunar and Planetary Institute. And Dr. Kendall Lynch, welcome to The Source. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm really glad to be here. Well, we're excited to have you. I think this is going to be a fun conversation. Uh, our phone number is 833-877-8255, 833-TPR-TALK got a question or a comment about finding life on another planet, uh, give us a call. You also, you can send an email to the source at tpr.org. So first off, uh, Dr. Lynch, what, what is life? How do we, how would we, it could be so weird and bizarre that we may not even ident- be able to see it as life? Um, well, yeah, that's one of the things that we actually um, are discussing t- um, right now. I'm actually um, in California at Caltech in a think tank workshop called the Keck Institute for Space Studies. And one of the things we're talking about is the biology of life detection and, you know, how do we think about life? Um, in general, um, we as astrobiologists, we, we, you know, we have a general uh, understanding of things that life needs or things that life does that constitute that altogether kind of make things life. So we have some criteria that that we do um, that we do kind of conform to, right? Um, so like all life, all life needs like a um, all life needs some kind of um, solvent, some kind of aqueous solvent, um, so that it can do chemical reactions. On Earth, life uses water, so water is kind of the universal solvent that that we use for life as we know it um, uses. Um, all life uses certain elements. On Earth, all those elements are um, sulfur, phosphorus, oxygen, um, nitrogen, carbon, and hydrogen, or sponge is what we like to call it. Um, all life uses energy, for, uh, needs energy, and it extracts that energy from its environment. All life um, uh, creates waste products. I like to tell kids all life poops. They think that that's hysterical. Um, um, all life, um, you know, reproduces itself. All life grows and changes and all life, um, evolves. So there's a, there's a set of criteria of things that we know that all life needs or does that, that are kind of, that can kind of help us build our case for being able to, you know, I have an idea if life can evolve in, in any given environment. And one of the things we're talking about this week is the different kind of ways that we can put together different ways to actually measure for these things, um, um, on, specifically on Mars. And the uh, trope response to that is like, what about fire? Fire creates waste products, smoke. It, it uh, consumes energy. It spreads. It can be reproduced. Uh, it has these basic needs, like you said. Uh, I don't know about evolving, but you know, people say. But, but that, and that would be the thing. It doesn't. It doesn't evolve, right? It doesn't evolve. It doesn't adapt to its environment. It just 
wreaks havoc. It doesn't evolve or adapt. So that that would be kind of the thing. It doesn't have the, you know, it doesn't show that capacity for evolving and adapting. So that would be like, yeah, because that's the one thing we get about fire all the time, right? And and fire doesn't need water to do chemistry. Water actually works against fire, right? So <laughs> so there's your answer, you know. Um, right. <laughs> so, and you have found or, you know, worked with uh, finding life that meets all these this criteria in some of the weirdest places on earth, places that we thought life could not exist. Where are some of these places? Oh, there's there's so many places. So I I, I specifically have worked in a couple of really cool environments. Uh, one of my earliest environments when I was still training, um, I got to work in the the Rio Tinto um, acid um, acid rock um, drainage system in southern Spain, and it's this amazing system where the river is actually blood red because it's just super full of iron and sulfur and it's super acidic like the the acidity can be like zero and sometimes negative one and um and it it seems like this place where life just couldn't survive you look at this red water and realize how much like iron is you know is dissolved in it and like oh life can't survive in it and yet it's teeming with life it's got tons of life and not only that we um when we when we see um acid um you know, acid systems like this and other places on Earth, we tend to see places, things like this um, in mining systems, and it's, and it's called acid mine drainage, and it's actually contamination from humans. But in Rio Tinto, it's actually natural. It's this water moving through this giant pyrite mass, uh, this massive rock, which is an iron um, sulfur rock that sits that that that's kind of all over southern Spain. It's that that water moving through that, and the microbes using the water and using the iron sulfides as energy that generates what we see in the river and the surface. So it's actually life in the subsurface making the surface environment that we see, and and life is and life is just living throughout that entire system and doing extremely well. So that's one of the systems that we studied that is very analogous to Mars. Um, another system that I've been in. Um, is my own field site, um, which is the Pilot Valley Basin in, um, in, in northwestern Utah. Um, it's part of the Great Salt Lake Desert. It's a paleo lake basin, which means it's an ancient lake bed, and it's very analogous to the two places um, that we currently have rovers on Mars. And um, what's happening here is there's a there's a groundwater there's groundwater moving through the ancient sediments that got laid down by this lake, and these sediments are very, very salty. It's what we call hypersaline, and it seems like it's impossible for life to live there, yet we find life just thriving throughout the system. And, but you've and also, there's, well. life has been found in these vents underwater, these volcanic vents, yes, yes. where there's the, no the sunlight capable. Uh, well, life has been mm -hmm. found uh, in nuclear reactors where people thought radiation would right. be impossible. Right, and we even we're even looking at places like um, the last place that I myself have been um, is this place called the Dalal Hydrothermal System, which is in Ethiopia, and it's this amazing system where you have this superheated water um, that's coming up, and it's a hydrothermal system that has been superheated from the subsurface, and the and it makes these amazing hydrothermal pools at the surface that are full of iron, they're full of sulfur, they're super acidic, and they're super hot. It's like what we call a poly extreme environment. Yet um, uh, uh, we're finding evidence of life in this extremely ex extreme. But, but what is it? You're, you're not you're finding you know microbial little critters, right? Yes, we're finding microbes. Yes, we find microbial life in almost all these systems. The number one life that we look at, um, that we're looking at, and, and, and that we kind of hope to find on other on other planets in our solar system is microbial life because life on earth goes everywhere we can find it two miles underground in gold mines we can find it in deep sea hydrothermal vents we, we even find life sometimes up you know 
up, up in the air. We find life everywhere. And so, you know, learning how this life lives and the different way that life figure out, out how to survive in these different environments is what allows us to then start to think about, well, how could life figure out how to survive on another planetary surface or the subsurface like Mars or in a subsurface ocean like on Europa? And it's interesting to see that there's there are theories that, you know, that life is exchanged between uh, planets and uh, maybe we're, we are distant cousins or maybe not so much. So we're going to take a break here. We're going to come back. We'll continue mm -hmm. our discussion talking about uh, life on Mars, the search for life on Mars, what that would look like and what it would mean. Uh, if you are a adamant believer that uh, there's no way life could be on Mars uh, or you or if and we give you the evidence. So what would that mean to you? Uh, give us a call. The number is 833-877-8255, 833-TPR-TALK. This is The Source on Texas Public Radio. We got a one minute break and we'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Big Sun Solar, committed to helping businesses strive towards energy independence and conservation. Solar is a great way for businesses to lower their carbon footprint. More at BigSunSolar.com slash TPR. You're listening to The Source on Texas Public Radio. I'm David Martin Davies. NASA's Perseverance rover has found that on Mars's Jericho crater at one point was filled with water offering tantalizing hope that it may have already unearthed fossilized life on the planet. The rover, which first arrived on at the crater in February of 2021, along with its now-retired helicopter companion Ingenuity, made the discovery using ground-penetrating radar, revealing layers of sediment once belonging to the lake later dried into a gigantic delta. This is raising hope that the geological, geological samples that Perseverance has collected from the crater and returned to Earth will show that there was at least life at one point on Mars. We're talking with Kendall Lynch. She is an astrobiologist and a geomicrobiologist. She is a staff scientist at the Lunar and Planetary Institute. Kendall, how exciting is this? Um, everything we're doing on Mars to um, answer this big question is super exciting, all of it. Everything we're doing with um, with Percy, um, we, we call her Percy, um, Perseverance or Percy, um, and also um, Curiosity, who's still in Gale Crater, still doing great work as well. Everything that both of those beautiful rovers is doing is helping us understand the habitability of the Martian environment more and more every day and the understanding of what kind of environments could have been there that could have supported life and helped us um, have a better idea of what we need to be looking for, um, both in situ, meaning while we're still there, and um, when we get those samples that um, Percy is collecting from Jezero back to Earth. There is this methane mystery about Mars. I'm sure you know all about it. Um, the idea that there's methane in the atmosphere that could have been created through a, a biological function, that maybe there's enough microbes doing their due un under the surface, and this is uh, you know, evidence of that. Can you tell me more? Well, it, it's one of the uh, it, it's one of the possible evidences, definitely, and we don't rule that out. There are there are other potential mechanisms that could be um, generating um, 
the methane as well. Um, and that's where having um, some of this data coming back from um, not only just the sample return, you know, um, having samples come back from um, from Perseverance and continuing to do our NC2 um, sampling that we're doing um, with Percy and Curiosity, but continuing to have um, future missions where we can continue to analyze uh, the surface of Mars will help us answer that question. I mean, right now it is definitely one of the possible mechanisms, but it could be there could be some other mechanisms. There are a lot of a abiotic or non-life ways to generate methane, um, and there there are a couple of uh, you know competing theories as to how that methane um, could be generated and how we're seeing it like um, seasonally the way that we're seeing it. Um, but like I said, having some of those samples come back, continuing to do the, 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 um, the um, robotic in situ analysis that we're doing, um, and then hopefully doing a, one of our future missions, which, is, um, which um, got identified by a recent decadal study and, and suggested to NASA a future life detection mission that right now is called Mars Life Explorer. Um, hopefully will help us answer that question about where this Mars methane comes from. And then eventually, eventually, we might have humans sent there that will help us explore the Martian surface even more and, and help us get even more evidence to make sure that we have an understanding of where the, this Mars methane came from. Is it generated by life? Do we have enough other um, pieces of the forensic puzzle about life from all of these different studies to, to confirm that we've you found possible evidence of life on Mars? So all this other life that we talked about earlier, you know, on the nuclear reactor and on the, these uh, underground, underwater volcano vents and in the uh, these different, the Spain, uh, acid rivers of Spain, do they all have like a common fingerprint of like, yeah, this is, this is, uh, this can't, this is earth life. You know, do, do they all have DNA and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is the, one of the things that, that we have to think differently about. So yeah, the, there's a common thing. They all have, they all are water-based, they all are water-based life. They're, they're, they're self is water. Um, they all have sponge, all those essential elements. And then, yeah, they all use um, our information system that we use here on Earth, which is DNA and RNA. And we all use the same set of amino acids also when we're building proteins in our other structures. So that is stuff that is very, very Earth-based. And one of the things that we're challenged to think about, and that's what we're doing in the workshop that I'm actually here at Caltech doing this week, all this week with other astrobiologists, is um, thinking about, you know, trying to think what we say agnostically. Like, so what are the, the kind of the ways that we would think about life as we don't know it that kind of have the similar functions but not specific? Like, is DNA actually going to be the information storage system like exactly like we have it on Earth, is that going to be the same information storage system on Mars? Or is it going to be something else? Are they going to have different, is it going to be a different chemical structure? Those are the kinds of things that we're talking about because we, we, we definitely recognize that we only have one data point, life on Earth. And um, so we, we have to think about life as we know it, and then we have to try to think more creatively as life as we don't know it. But it's possible it could be the same. There has been there have been theories that oh, yeah. Earth and Mars, maybe other planets, have you know shared uh, life fragments uh, through collisions and other things. So uh, that's possible. Yeah, yeah. So there's the theory of planetary of what they call like seeding from you know impacts and stuff and pieces of Earth or pieces of Mars, you know, bumping off and then flying to the other planet. And indeed, on Earth, we do find 
quite often, and we have an, a, a whole suite of Martian meteorites, which is how we did some of our earlier earliest work of understanding the environments, especially the gas composition of Mars, is proving that these meteorites that we found, most of which were found in Antarctica, were actually from the planet Mars that were ejected off of Mars from an impact, you know, millions of years ago, and and then and found their way to Earth. Um, so yeah, that is possible. But one of the other things that we have to make sure of too is that. What is also possible is, you know, we have to be careful that we're not detecting ourselves. We have to be really careful that when we send an instrument to Mars, like including the rovers, we have to be very careful about being so super, super clean, as clean as we can, so that we're not detecting ourselves. And so we want to have that understanding of, you know, the extent of, of, you know, and that's why we do so much work that we do here on Earth is not only to understand how life could evolve on other planets, but also understanding the extent of life ourselves so that when we do a detection on another planet, we know the difference between detecting ourselves, where we might have accidentally sent a little bit of contamination, versus detecting life in the in situ environment. So that's a lot of work that we do as well. As as also concerned about contaminating Mars, uh, you know, that bringing a, a foreign uh, entity to Mars. That I mean, could it survive? Um, right now on the Mars. Eh. So there's a lot of work being done to look at that. We have NASA has what's called a Planetary Protection Office that evaluates that. And the likelihood is that have we, you know, um, have we possibly brought things to Mars? Yes, but are they in regions where we're worried about them contaminating the planet? Probably not. And and the thing is that the surface of Mars is so so harsh. Super cold, lots of radiation, um, very very dry. Not a lot of, um, of, of of like water potential, especially the places so far that where we sent things. The likelihood that we sent anything that could contaminate the surface is extremely low. And NASA and and um, and the entire Mar um, Mars uh, science community. Um, that's something we work on very heavily and very carefully to make sure that when we plan a mission and we we send a, a you know a um, a uh, uh, a piece of an instrument, a rover, or anything um, that we we work hard to send it in a way that's not going to contaminate the planet. So it's got to be clean. <laughs> so yeah, so we got to make sure it's super, basically we make sure it's as clean as we can get Windex. it. Windex. And we also yeah <laughs> yeah, and we also try not to send it to some of our most what we call sensitive sensitive areas where we think that you know uh, it, it might be sensitive. We, we right now we don't send our we don't send our. Um, uh, in thinking about extant life right now, we don't send places where we think there might have been ex there might be a possibility of extant life. Right now, we just don't send we don't send spacecraft there right now. Okay, so based upon things better, based upon your observations in these other extreme places in, in Earth where you find these uh, microbe lives living, does that if, if something is living, is there always something that is eating whatever is living? I mean, it creates a, an ecosystem. Um. Ideally, that's the thought, right? Um, I, I, are you saying – I, mean, I want to make sure I understand your question. Are you asking there's always somebody eating somebody else, like kind of like I guess what we call like trophic levels? There's there's always like an apex predator or something yeah. like that. Is that what you're kind of right, talking about? Right, and you can see that through evolution that, you know, once there's a yeah. branch, because we're gonna, rather than me doing all the hard work of trying to break down these substances, I'm going to eat my old cousin, and suddenly you develop a whole <laughs> new species of a predator. <laughs> Um, that's a great question that I, you know, I, in the context of astrobiology, I'm not so sure that we've, we, uh, that we've really had that conversation with respect to looking for life on other planets. 
so much is because we're so focused on what kind of energy resources are there just so that they can survive. I don't think we've really thought about them, you know, and we do think about them competitively going after resources, you know, and being competitive about how they go about getting energy from their environment. But I don't know if we really have talked, you know, like in depth about predator-prey relationships at the microbial level, like on, a, on another planet. I, I, that's, that's a great thing to think about, though, actually, now that you mention that. I mean, because that's um, like, the, I, it could I mean, be the plankton of, uh, of a life cycle. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> and I mean, I mean, and most of what we're looking at with life is we are looking at pretty much single-cell microorganisms, and we're not looking for anything. Right now, we don't expect... We don't expect to find anything like complex like, like we see here, like multicellular life. You know, we're looking at microbial single-celled life. So as yeah. far as microbes re-eating each other and like reusing resources, sure, when a microbe dies and starts to break down, another microbe is going to swoop in and grab their organics and grab whatever they can. So that is definitely going to probably happen. But as far as competitive predator-prey, that's, that's just that's, that's a kind of – would be a fun exercise to think about, but it's not something that has really come up too much in most many of our life detection conversations. So, um, the, there isn't a, a thought that at one time Mars was a lot more lush than than it was today. Maybe billions of years ago, it lost its atmosphere and its water. So, yes. are are we thinking that we're going to be finding evidence of not you know fossils of giant uh, critters or you know varmints or nothing, but maybe of the microbial life that existed back then? Yes, we, we, we do. That, that is the hope is that, you know, during that time at about three, uh, about three and a half billion years ago when Mars still had a dynamo like our planet has and a magnetic field that allowed its atmosphere to stay intact, albeit cooler because it was further away from the sun, Mars did have all that liquid water on the surface. Um, but the problem is it was so much shorter lived. Um, that's where the challenge comes in is one of the big things we ask about is how much time did life have to arise and thrive and then get preserved. But yeah, we're, um, we, we think it, we, it definitely had, um, you know, millions of years for sure, but it didn't have the kind of time that earth had, right? Earth has had three, you know, three and a half billion years, you know, to, to kind of, you know, a lot of, of evolve life. But, and that's why we think that life kind of stopped at single cellular, single micro microorganisms. But we do um, think that during that period of time and even beyond that, we're starting to learn that there, there was, um, sub life in the subsurface that it could have persisted past when um, the atmosphere went away and the magnetic field went away and all the surface water uh, dried up or, or turned into ice in the poles or went back into the subsurface. We think that life could have persisted in the shallow subsurface um, uh, for, for a lot more time. And there's still a possibility that life might um, exist in the deep subsurface where there still possibly could be liquid water today. Right, because life's pretty stubborn. Once it takes root, it, yes. it, it tries to hang on and will, and will adapt well, it, in amazing ways. Yeah, even even I mean, even life on Earth, even with stops and starts. I mean, if you think about it, life has stopped and started many times. We've had, um, you know, at least five major mass extinction events, and life has kind of picked up the pieces after the event and kind of started over and, and has repropagated again. Um, and so, yeah, we, we, we do think that if, you know, life will figure out uh, you know, again, not to be hokey and quote Jurassic Park, but life finds a way, right? <laughs> you got to throw in like so, a Jeff Goldblum sort of a you know, life uh, 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 finds a way. Yeah, 
<laughs> right, exactly. So even if life, even if water had to retreat into the deep subsurface, life is, you know, the, the idea is um, many of us think and, and postulate that life probably, if that water is there and all the resources are there, life could have found a way to survive and may continue to survive, and we could have a deep subsurface ecosystem um, on Earth, on Mars, like we do kind of in the deep, like in the deep subsurface of Earth. And, and then in fact, we have people, that's the reason why people study that, so that we could understand and kind of figure out how to look for that. All right, we're taking another break. Uh, we're going to continue our conversation with Dr. Kendall Lynch, uh, NASA scientist uh, studying microbiology, astrobiology. Uh, is there life on Mars? Was there life on Mars and other places in the solar system? Also, when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, could we grow food in the regolith of Mars? Uh, is there something there that could uh, make that uh, science fiction fantasy uh, just a fantasy? Got a question or comment? Give us a call. 833-877-8255, 833-TPR-TALK. It's The Source from Texas Public Radio. We'll be right back. Support for TPR comes from the Lawton family of restaurants. Cappy's, Cappuccino's, Mama's Cafe, La Fonda on Main, and Jingu House. Located in San Antonio. Their diverse menus and hours can be viewed at LawtonRestaurants.com. This is The Source on Texas Public Radio. I'm David Martin Davies. We're having a conversation with Kendall Lynch, Dr. Kendall Lynch, a staff scientist at the Lunar and Planetary Institute, astrobiologist, geomicrobiologist at NASA studying life in extreme environments on Earth and looking for biosignatures and other planetary bodies in our solar system and elsewhere like Mars or maybe some of these uh, satellites uh, going around Saturn or Jupiter. Got a question or a comment? Give us a call 833-877-8255, 833-TPR-TALK. And we do have JD on the line. And JD, um, let's get you lit up and you'll be on the air soon. And J.D., are you there? J.D., you're on the air. Hello. Hey there. We got it worked is, out. Uh, all this, all this uh, exploration and everything on Mars, uh, we're extracting uh, like um, gold or whatever we're extracting from all there. Who will it benefit? And uh, also, if we're trying to find out what we can grow, well, will that benefit? Will all this money we're spending to get over there benefit the average person or just the corporations or the rich? All right, J.D., thank you for the call. Uh, so, uh, Kendall Lynch, I'm pretty sure that going all the way to Mars to get gold would not be, um, you know, economically a, a good formula. But what about uh, anything else we find there? Well, so one of the things that is important about what we're trying to do on Mars, so with respect to what we call in-situ resource utilization, and I think that's what J.D. is getting at is, you know, going to Mars and trying to, you know, grow plants there, we're going to extract resources from the environment there. Um, most of that is to allow humans to be able to actually survive long-term on Mars. So, um, you know, one of the long-term goals is, you know, is Mars another place that, that humans 
over the long term, can they call home? Well, if, if we're going to do that, we have to be able to figure out how to live on Mars using the resources locally because it's going to be really hard to get a resupply of, you know, fr- you know fresh plants, fresh fruit and vegetables, um, you know, building materials and stuff like that from Earth because, you know, it's a six-month transit period, and that's every two years that it's six months. So um, it's, it takes longer if, you're, if you don't hit that perfect window every every two years. So, um, you know, I, I see what he's saying. You know, it's like, well, who does this benefit? Well, first and foremost, it it definitely keeps the people that who are going to Mars and that are going to stay there long term alive. But one of the things that we're, that is going to help us is learning how to, you know, extract resources and specifically some of the projects that I work on, learning how to use the Martian um, rock and regolith and transforming it into basically soil so that we can grow food in it, that's going to help us learn how to do that um, here on Earth as as our actual fertile soil gets gets more and more, you know, um, destroyed and, and utilized and it gets harder and harder to grow grow food on on planet on the planet because some of our traditional thermal farm soil is starting to, you know, go away. Learning how to transform less than ideal um uh, less than ideal um um, you know, rocks and, and dirt into actual usable soil is a thing that could help us, in, in, you know, improve and increase our food security across the world, especially in places where you don't have, like, you know, I grew up in Illinois, I grew up in the heart of farmland, and there are places in the world that don't have the beautiful soil that we do to grow corn and soybean and all sorts of fruits and vegetables that I, that I grew up seeing in, in the farms of Illinois. But, but what we're trying to do on Mars and trying to find ways to kind of create that artificially, that could help us create, you know, possibly farms here on Earth. Maybe they're vast indoor farms so that we can make sure that we can grow food for our human population here. And so some of the work that we're doing to do this on Mars is going to definitely benefit us back here on Earth. Yeah, it's not even really clear what soil is. I mean, that's that's a, a question up for debate uh, among gardeners. You know, <laughs> what is what actually um, is soil? And so we'll, soil is <laughs> go ahead. Well, I mean, you know what you mentioned regolith. Let's just get that out of the way. Regolith is like what we find on the surface of the moon or it's just, it's devoid of life and it cannot be used <laughs> to grow anything. It is it is lifeless clumps of, of matter. It's not even dirt because dirt still has an implication that it could be used to grow things with. Well, so yes and 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 no. So we define soil, you know, my soil scientist friend is basically soils anything that life has actually chewed on and has left, you know, left some organic matter in it. So soil is stuff that life has actually processed for us. Oh, and you know, so the soil on earth, microbes have processed it, worms have processed it. It's been processed a lot. There's a lot of organics in that soil. It's been really turned over and it's a mix of those organics and a mix of different like rocks and minerals, albeit at a very small scale, that are a great environment for plants to grow in. Now, here's the funny thing is that regolith is not soil because life has not processed it in any way. Um, and there's not a lot, of, at least on Mars, there's not a lot of, there's, we, we found some organics, but there's not a lot. On the moon, you know, there's, there's not a lot either. <laughs> but, but... There, but the rocks, the minerals, there's actually minerals that have a lot of the nice nutrients that plants do like and need. And actually, especially on Mars, there's a lot of the what we say the big nutrients and the little nutrients. We call them macro and micro. 
that that plants do need, they're actually locked up in the rocks. So if we can throw microbes into that regolith, that lifeless regolith, get it chewing on it, getting processing up that, that regolith rock, releasing some of those nutrients and making it available and adding carbon, organic carbon to the rock and basically turning that regolith into soil, then it becomes a great place for plants to grow. And, and we do know that plants can grow at least a little bit on the regolith. We, um, we've had uh, researchers, um, that researchers at University of Florida showed that they could grow plants, at least get them started growing in lunar um, um, and regolith from Apollo samples. Um, and I think there's also a study of um, that was done um, at uh, Tufts University where they showed that they, um, using like um, Mars meteorite dust, they could they could actually get some plants to like, they could get um, either, it was either plants or microbes, they could get life to kind of grow in this Mars meteorite dust that they that they collected from, from, from a meteorite. So Yeah, um, I, I, saw, is... I saw a study where they were able to create what they thought was like artificial Martian dirt. This is based upon, we know what they think is there, and they grew uh, tomatoes. And there was actually yeah. a Heinz a Martian a ketchup that they produced. <laughs> yeah, there's actually a lot of research um, going on that like, like that. We call it. Um, we actually have. A, it's actually a, a big focus in NASA now, especially with the Artemis program coming. You know, and and sending humans back to the moon to stay. And then we have this new program called the Moon to Mars Gateway, where we're planning. To, you know, we're going to send humans back to the moon first. Then we're going to send them on to Mars. And a big goal is at some point we want them to be able to stay both on the moon and Mars. And in order for them to do that, they're going to have to be able to grow their own food. So there's a lot of work. They're going to have to be able to grow their own food. They're going to have to be able to make their own you know, materials out of lunar and Martian resources. So there is a lot of work to understand and make what we say are simulants of both the moon and Mars, just kind of like analog environments that we use here on Earth to look for life. We make simulants of the moon and Martian regolith to work with so we can try to figure out how to do things like, you know, turn it into soil um, for growing plants or using it to turn it into resources for building materials or using it with microbes for to microbes to grow on to do things like um, getting the microbes to make um, antibiotics like we do here on Earth. We, you know, a lot of our drugs are made by by microbes that we kind of encourage them. We grow them the right way, encourage them to release antibiotics, and we collect those antibiotics, and, and that's how you get some of your medicine. So how can we do that with lunar and Martian resources is a big area that a lot of us are starting to work in, and we call it biological in situ resource eaters utilization or BISRU for short. So it's a big thing that is going to start being a lot of focus for, um, for researchers um, looking at um, getting ready to send humans to the moon and Mars so we can figure out all these different ways that we can, that we can make these products in situ and it can contribute to life support system development. If you've got plant grows, growing in Martian or lunar regolith, they're generating oxygen. So you have a natural way to make the oxygen for your habitat to help keep your crew alive. So there's a lot of things that we're looking at in using these in situ or these resources that are on the planets already there so that we don't have to sit there and think about how to get all this stuff and, and transit it um, from Earth, which would be really expensive and take a really long time and would not be sustainable long term. Well, let's get to the uh, 2015 uh, movie, The Martian. Uh, and so <laughs> yes. in that film, the the character who was stranded on Mars, uh, Watney, uh, he yes. takes uh, pieces of potatoes and he uses his crew's uh, stored uh, excrement and he uses that as a fertilizer and he tries to, and he successfully grows potatoes on the surface of Mars in this, in a, in a little protected area. So, um, tell me about, is that possible? Um, it is definitely, <laughs> it is possible. 
possible, but not probably the probably not the greatest way to go around it because he skipped a few steps that are really important specifically for Mars and that. First of all, growing in your own poop, yes. I mean, honestly, the real the realization is is that our poop gets recycled and it becomes part of our fertile soil. So at some point, right now, you know, you know, we're dealing with you know ancient animal, you know that every day we're eating sure. you know we're growing plants in ancient animal and dinosaur poop every day right so um uh so that is definitely a thing but one of the things that we like to do is you know you want to process it a little bit to make sure that it's safe for you so that's 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 the step that kind of got missed but on mars in particular there's one particular mineral that we really are working hard and that's a project that i work on um to to get rid of so that it it makes it makes the Martian material safe, and that's this um, this little molecule called perchlorate, and it's found all over the surface of Mars. It's also found all over the surface of Earth. It's generated on Earth, just in a lot more abundance on Mars. There's a lot more of it on Mars. Right, and, but so um, Kendall, we're coming up on bumping up against the break here, and we're going to talk more gotcha. about this perchlorate, uh, the salt, right, and uh, mm-hmm. and how it impacts uh, life on Mars, and whether or not it can yep. be, uh, you know, managed. Uh, if it's going to be a barrier to uh, terraforming and colonizing Mars, and how will we work with that? Yeah. Our phone lines are open. If anyone's got a question or a comment about you know using the Martian regolith, turn it into workable soil uh, to grow uh, vegetables and oxygen-creating plants, uh, what what can we do? Is uh, finding uh, microbio uh, mi- microbes in native microbes will that keep us from terraforming Mars? Should we be thinking about that as well? 833-877-8255, 833-TPR-TALK. It's The Source on Texas Public Radio. We'll be right back. This is The Source from Texas Public Radio. Ken Lynch is with us, staff scientist at the Lunar and Planetary Institute. Let's get back to this soil issue. You found these perchlorates <laughs> in, the, in the soil, and this could be a, a – how big of a problem is that? Um, this could be a very big problem because um, perchlorate actually um, um, competes with binding sites. Um, it competes with iodine. Your thor um, in your body, your thyroid – um, which makes a lot of your hormones for your body that help your body function, it needs iodine to work. And perchlorate actually blocks that iodine, kicks it out of the way, and blocks where iodine can bind on your thyroid. And so without that iodine, your thyroid doesn't work right. You don't get the hormones that you need correctly. And so your body starts to work, um, doesn't work well. So long story short, Mark Watney eating those potatoes on Mars probably would have not been doing very well very quickly and for, for a long time, and it could lead to very, very serious diseases and possibly even death over a long time if you, can't, if you, if you don't get regular iodine to keep your thyroid working um, properly. So we really want to make sure that we don't um, grow our plants um, in the regolith where they're still perchlorate persistent. We don't want um, it in the water that we extract from the Martian surface. So one of the projects that we're working on is to actually figure out how to use microbes from extreme environments here on Earth to process that perchlorate, break it down, and make make, um, Martian regolith safe for us to grow our plants in and to extract water from and to do all other sorts of things for humans to live on Earth. But so the film was made in uh, 2015. They they made had a lot to talk about. This is based on science. But we've learned a lot since then. Uh, we're mm-hmm. learning every more every day. It seems like yes, 
Oh yes, oh yes, and and we knew about the perchlorates back then, but we just, you know, you know, that's that's that whole suspension of disbelief part, right? So we knew about it, but you know, you can't you can't hit everything right in a movie, and it was still a great movie, and I love, I still love it, and I still love the the, the concept of how they, you know, the, the, the science fiction concept of, of of a mission to Mars and how you survive on Mars, but you know, so but yes, every day we learn more and more and more, and we learn how, and we're one of the things we're trying to learn now is how do we how do we do things there on Mars to keep to make to make it safe for for humans to to, to live and and thrive there. So if we have the big discovery and uh, that there is today living microbes under the surface of, of Mars, that's probably what we're kind of like looking for, right? We think this it could be there, right? Mm-hmm. That's not far fetched. Yes. No, it's not. <laughs> and so if that happens, uh, would Would that kill the idea of terraforming Mars? I know Elon Musk has some ideas like nuking the the ice caps or doing something to change Mars so that it would be over maybe over several hundred years become habitable. Uh, So you said the T word. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I... I, as you can probably guess, I'm, I'm personally not a big fan of terraforming Mars, whether we send humans there or not. And, and from our perspective, fine, I, I, I think we should not be thinking about terraforming Mars, even if we haven't found life um, yet when we send humans there. I think that we need to really try to understand the planet as it is, which is going to take generations to do before we think about changing it. I mean, as it is, sending humans there is going to change it a little bit, and we're trying to figure out how to do that in the most friendly way so that we can still study the planet and study the possibility of, you know, of, 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 you know, life, extant life being on the planet there or, or finding evidence that extinct life was once there. So that's one of the things that, you know, I, I think that that's just something that we, we want to focus on how to send humans there safely to live in habitats, but not necessarily change the planet. Like how can we use resources, but, you know, kind of be there in a, in a friendly way that's safe for us and also safe for the planet and allows us to still learn about the planet before we go about changing it. And that's, that's kind of just how I see it. Do you think uh, O'Neill, creation of O'Neill cylinders, it would be a better alternative than going to Mars and trying to terraform that? O'Neill cylinder being like a thousand, you know, uh, like a kilometer long uh, uh, human habitat floating in space. Uh, ma- even people uh, would be living on the inside. We saw it at the end of the the film Inter- Inter- uh, Interstellar. Those types of things. Um, I, I think there are those that think that um, there's also um, the concept of a Dyson sphere too, which is kind of similar to O'Neill cylinders. Um, so, I mean, I think that that's definitely that's a cool way for us to maybe go maybe, you know, do something like a generational ship where we generationally explore like the solar system and the universe. I think that that would be a cool way if, if you could make something like that that could actually kind of be a generational traveling well, system. You know, that Jeff that Bezos be a- is talking about just having them in our, uh, in our orbit so that people would live there uh, as a, to grow the species, you know. Um, I mean, that's 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 one thing that it's not extra uh, exobiology. It's just a creation of new spaces to to live in. Something else to think about. Um, you know these billionaires with their with their ideas. <laughs> yes, I mean it's definitely so. 
something to think about, and I love that the billionaires have these cool ideas. And if those ideas are, allow more and more of our population to be able to have the experience of being able to live and sustain in space, I, I think it's cool. The, the question is the resources that it would take to build something like that. And maybe that's where, you know, we look at things like asteroid mining for resources. There's a lot of that going on. So I, I could see that being, uh, you know, a way to kind of help uh, the human population sustain themselves um, and live off planet. So I, I don't think, I, I don't think it's, an alternative to go to Mars, I definitely think it's a way to allow humans to live off-world, um, but I don't think it necessarily needs to replace going to Mars. It just may be another way that we we extend the human, you know, the the human influence, uh, you know, human life and influence into space is through, you know, these O'Neill tubes or Dyson spheres or things like that, in addition to, you know, learning to live on another planet. So what do you see are the biggest challenges right now for keeping us from finding that life on Mars? Um, ooh, um, the, I think some of our biggest, our, our biggest challenges right now is making sure um, that the result that we have is a true result. Um, I like to tell people, and, and this is something, again, that we're having in this whole conversation this week while I'm at Caltech, um, is that, you know, it's, Looking for life is kind of like being a CSI investigator. Instead of CSI Miami, it's like CSI Mars, right? You're putting together your evidence, and you need multiple lines of evidence, and you have to be sure that every piece of evidence, every measure you make, that that, is, that, that measurement is a true positive. It's not, an, it's not a false positive or an accidental-like result that really isn't real, and that you know that it's real, and that all of those pieces stack up that you have a good case saying we think we found something that could be life. And so I think that's the biggest challenge that we as the astrobiology community are faced with right now is, you know, is figuring out, you know, is working towards having that clear um, set of, uh, of mutually confirming tests and being able to do, you know. So it would be beyond a doubt. Do. It would be bulletproof. We know yeah, it for sure. Yeah, basically, yeah. Bulletproof beyond the doubt. You take your case. You take it to the to the jury and the judge, which is the, the the global people, and say we found it. Here's our evidence. We found who done it. Here is the case, and without a without a doubt. And that is the biggest challenge: is being able to have that without a doubt. Right. And and I and we think it's going it's to take time. It's going to take technology, and it's going to take um, both samples coming back and us visiting the the Martian surface and other planets, um, and and being able to do lots of science on those planets. We go to a caller. Uh, we have Paul on the line. And do we have Paul on line one? Okay. Uh, I don't know if we're able to get Paul. Hang on one second. And Paul, you're on the air. So, hey, Paul, awesome. now you're on the air. Okay, great. I was just saying great show. I'm a frequent listener. So in the consideration of scarce resources, has the – astrobiological community considered sending robots we have so much um, invested in robots and their technology the scarcest resource we have is human life I was just thinking that maybe to get the most out of that trip would be to put a robot to use on the planet you mean like the rovers we have now just more of them well, the rovers are, I was thinking really of uh, Boston Dynamics with the type of uh, robots that they've developed to go into high radiation areas, manipulate um, material like doors and handles and um, just the ability to 
do like a human, but with uh, without mm-hmm. the risk of human life and okay. the higher durability of the, the robot format. Paul, thank you for that question. Uh, and so, uh, Kenda? Um, yeah, I mean, and, and, and as, as, as David said, that you know, we, we that's what we've that's what we have been doing for the last uh, twenty or thirty years. We send these really capable robots, and 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 they they they're really robust. We say they're going to last, you know, three months in the case of the Mars exploration rovers, and they last you know, like ten years. And in the case of Percy and, and Curiosity, we say they're going to last a year, and they definitely both are lasting long beyond that. So they're very robust. Um, but the thing is, is that. The amount that they can do because of the, the long-term distance with the communication, um, those rovers still have to talk to humans to do their job, those robots. And um, and we are getting better at, you know, AI and automated, like, self-intelligence. The robots do have a lot of their own decision-making, but the reality is is that when you're trying to do some of that science, there's a lot more science that a human can do if they're there and able to pick up a rock and look at it and then take it back to their hab and do some measurements in there. Um, there's a lot more science that they can do in a lot shorter period of time um, than a robot can do. And one of the things that we're looking at is we are, even with sending humans, we are looking at, well, how can you humans and robots work together so that we send humans to be able to do the science thinking and be there in real time, but we still send the robots into the cave or we send them down the cliff. We still make the robots do the dangerous work. It's just the human does the science processing with the samples the robots bring back. So absolutely, we want to we want to use them to help us. And then we do want, I mean, people, we want the human experience. We want to expand the species. Yes. That's it's, a, it's maybe a poetic or a philosophical point, but it seems important. Uh, Kendall Lynch, thank you so much for joining us. Staff scientist at the Lunar and Planetary Institute, NASA. It's been great talking with you today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And this is The Source on Texas Public Radio. Thank you for listening. This has been The Source on Texas Public Radio. The Source is hosted and produced by David Martin Davies. Kayla Padilla is our booking and engagement producer. Engineering support from Ruben Garcia, Jesse Reeves, and Steve Short. Dan Katz is TPR's Vice President of News. The Source is made possible with support from the Gladys and Ralph Lazarus Foundation.